0: Hi everyone. The following interview with my guest Simon was pre-recorded several weeks ago prior to the coronavirus interrupting all of our regularly scheduled lives. I know this is touching all of you in different ways and suffice to say it's been a big adjustment for everyone. One of the ways I am addressing this with my subscribers and my podcast audience, you, is through more frequent live interactions uh, such as webinars where we have a chance to interact in real time uh, people can ask me questions about their data products, and we can simply connect right now while uh, so many of us are spending time apart. If you're interested in attending one of those live sessions, just head on over to designingforanalytics.com podcast and hop on my Insights mailing list there. Uh, you'll get those announcements when I uh, schedule the next webinar. But more importantly, I just wanted to thank all of the healthcare workers, grocery store workers, and all the other essential service providers who go to work every day, putting their life and their families' lives at risk every day to keep us safe. We are potentially walking weapons right now, and these people need our help. So please stay home, keep your distance, and remember that you are potentially a danger to them and everyone else, even if you feel well. These people deserve that much from all of us. Thank you, and I hope to see you all on the next live webinar. But for now, let's get back to experiencing data. You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian O'Neill, and today I have Simon Buckingham Shum on the phone from Australia. How's it going? Good morning, Brian, or
1: good evening to you.
0: Yeah, exactly. We were we were kind of joking around. You're already in the future, and for those listening, uh, he can report that the that tomorrow is doing just fine despite everything that's going on in the world. So, <laughs> good news to to report uh, from the yep. future. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> you are the uh, prof- you have. Uh, uh, it's an interesting title here. You're a professor of learning informatics and director of the Connected Intelligence Center at the University of Technology in Sydney. So, mm-hmm. to a lay person or a lay analytics person who may not know much about learning analytics and uh, data in the field of education, which is kind of our topic today, tell us what that means. Like, what, what does a day in the life of Simon look like? <laughs>
1: right well um so yes i'm an academic uh most of the people you talk to are more in industry and business and government but we are very applied here at uts we're we're interested in in how the big data revolution and analytics and blah 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 what what does that actually mean for for education for learning and of course when we say learning uh, we're not just talking about what goes on in school or in university. It's it's lifelong learning these days. Everybody is continually upskilling. So, so I hope that the, the things that we're talking about today will be relevant for, for governments and, and businesses as well. Um, a day in, in my life is a whole mix of working with my team who are PhD students uh, and researchers who are, have got their PhDs. We have data scientists on our team and and our whole job here is as an innovation center for the university but sharing what we do widely and open source as well basically asking well what is analytics and um increasingly moving into some ai well, what does that mean for the operation of a university how does this make a difference to to business processes to teaching and learning
0: uh, to researchers got it part of the reason i wanted to chat with you uh, and i'd love to to hear your perspective on this is that so you you have a PhD from the University of York and human uh, human computer interaction or HCI as we call it, uh, which is in the design field basically, and now you're working with data scientists and mm. in the analytics field. So, tell us about the collision of these two worlds. Like, what what perspective do you think that that brings, and do you sometimes feel like? an outsider a little bit with like your, your lens being maybe different than some of the people that you bring in. And I, I imagine it's complimentary, but what's mm. that unique angle that you think your background uh, in HCI uh, kind of brings to the table in your work?
1: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I come from the human sciences. I came through psychology, ergonomics, and then into human-computer interaction and was just, you know, just completely fascinated by, by what happens when people engage with technology and the different ways that they see the world and um, so that's that's been my my whole world view since since the uh the, the late 80s and i've gradually moved into learning and um and, and now educational data science and and so that's the perspective i bring so whilst we have the technical people On the team and in the university who are, who are going to talk machine learning and statistics and, um, so forth. Um, I'm always asking what's the user experience going to be? How are we actually going to put something in front of people that they're going to understand? You know, like putting up a dashboard does not, is not the same thing as providing insight, uh, or providing good feedback. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we can talk a bit more about, about how we're thinking about that later, perhaps. But yeah. Um, so. Human-centered data science for learning, that's, that's our strap line.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and that means all the usual things you'd expect from user-centered design about the way you design, who gets to have a voice in the design, who gets to have a voice in, uh, in, 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 in the requirements analysis and the user experience, uh, all that good stuff. But as academics, we're also bringing quite a, a critical eye to the whole infrastructure that's emerging. So we want to ask you know, hard questions about, well, where is our training data coming from? Uh, and increasingly, yeah, it's great to see so many people asking critical questions about the biases that you can get in training data and, and in algorithms as well. Mm-hmm. And we want to ask uh, questions about um, whether people are trusting this technology. It's all very well to talk about big data and, and AI, etc. But ultimately, no one's going to use this stuff if they don't trust it. So mm-hmm. what does it mean? To trust uh, an analytics or AI powered learning infrastructure,
0: mm-hmm. and we'll probably go into this a little bit later. But is is there a particular recent example you can give me of where that trust factor came into play, and and kind of your design pers- your design eye on this, the human factors uh, element, kind of either got you in front of it and prevented that, or or use you know was kind of a Told you so, told you so, kind of situation where it's like, well, this is the risk when we don't, when we don't think about designing the solution with people involved. This is the risk that we run into. Is anything recent come to mind in your space?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's 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 there's, there's a lot of examples now um, emerging, in, and and um, for example, uh, there are lots of ed tech companies now. You can't buy an ed tech product without a dashboard of some sort. And so finally, you will know what your students are doing, but often the, the the system is logging relatively simple things, you know, clicks and page views and so forth. And and many educators are saying, well, that's all very well, but doesn't really tell me anything about learning. Um, if the technology is not rolled out in a, in a in a in an appropriate way within a within a school or university, then again, hard pressed teachers and educators can feel just dumped on. Oh, here's another tool we're supposed to be using and nobody's trained as adequately. And what's this got to do with with the kinds of teaching and learning and assessment that, that I'm interested in? We are seeing um, AI products coming out. Some of them are great and are making a huge difference for learning STEM type subjects, you know, science, tech, engineering, and medicine, but some of them are not getting the balance right. And we've got parents and teachers and students uh, literally on the streets protesting that they're They're spending way too long in front of screens and they're not engaging with each other and with their with with their teachers enough and they're not picking up the skills they need for for future jobs Um, so people are getting it wrong and that's all part of the hype cycle around big data and analytics which is now starting to you know pervade education the way we're trying to get it right the way that people are getting it right is really engaging the computer science and the data science with the learning science. That means really understanding, you know how are people learning, what are they needing? What do teachers really need to know about uh, students' progress? And here at the university, because we have the capacity with my, within my own center, we are developing and adapting software, and we have control over the code. so we can actually bring educators in and go through co-design sessions with them. We can bring students in. And use participatory design techniques which which don't require high high technical knowledge
0: but which give them a
1: voice in, in envisioning what this software should be doing
0: got it got it the when we met uh, I was really fascinated by this this area, and so I actually went out and and uh, called up uh, the the head of data governance and data at my university and just to do a little research and kind of learn about what they were i figured well might as well start where i went to school and Mm -hmm. see and see what what they were doing there and it was pretty interesting you know she reported to me that you know the president uh i think had an accounting background so was very interested in using data to make decisions across the university and so they've designed dashboards and apparently all the deans you know, are required to use these, uh, you know, these dashboards, uh, and, and so I started asking her how, how did they go about figuring out what stuff to measure and and what the right dashboards were, and and she said, well, we do training, and you know, the the president has kind of decreed like this, these are the metrics and and KPIs that we're going to measure, and everybody will be using these, and uh, you know, apparently she said there's a, a lot of willingness from the deans to attend the training, and a couple of things concern me there. A, hey, I always get worried when there's when there's a lot of training required for technology like this, and b, I couldn't help but wonder if like the you know the geology department and the performing arts department really need to be tracking exactly the same metrics, and it's like i I, I kind of just wonder if we're tracking mm. we're tracking stuff that's trackable. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's some, some practical use with enrollment numbers and some of the more you know the financial aspects of running a university, et cetera, but I don't know. I just I I, I and I don't know because I haven't talked to you know deans from multiple departments. But I would just think that even with those two examples, there must be different needs, right? And and are are we are we st- is this still at a very basic level where we're we're tracking like low level data and trying to kind of in, inform intention from that? Or mm. know, any mm. thoughts on that? Oh yeah, yeah. So we spend a lot of time um,
1: explaining to people that. There are, so there are some quite different kinds of analytics in the world of education. So the kinds of things you, are being, you t- talked about where a university is essentially using business intelligence the way that any organization would use BI, right, to, mm-hmm. to try and track some high-level indicators about, about how things are going. Um, so to the extent that you know, a big university or a school is like any other organization that has business processes and, and, K- and KPIs that give you a, a sort of bird's eye view of how things are going. Well, universities can make use of that. And, you know, the fact that your, your example involved deans. Well, you know, deans operate at at a very senior level and they're just looking for some key outcomes like student numbers in, Mm -hmm. success at the end. How are, you know, finances going? Um, how many of them are getting jobs at the end? What are the demographic breakdowns? So these are the kinds of things that you will find in any educational, um, organization. It's the standard Mm -hmm. kind of metadata you'd have about any student. Sure. Okay. And so that's fine. That's BI for organizations and, and for managers. Mm -hmm. Now down where, where the sort of exciting stuff is really is about tracking students day by day, week by week in order to try and pick up quickly enough how things are going to make a difference. Right. So it's all very well for the dean to be seeing that we had this dropout rate by the end of the semester. But how about data and analytics to actually improve? retention right uh, to improve engagement to improve the depth of learning mm-hmm. um, and and this is where all a lot of the excitement is um, about closing the feedback loop to teachers and students about how things are going and of course in big data in any sector you know all the excitement about that is about studying a complex system trying to see what it's doing in time to make a difference not just conducting a post-mortem afterwards right so so that's, you know, when we translate that into teaching and learning, we are trying to track how, how the system is going uh, and, and, and whether we can close the feedback loop to students to empower them uh, as well as the teachers. So, you know, ideally we don't want these tools to just be perceived by students as surveillance tools that are tracking them at high fidelity. And we could be talking about anything from every click they make to their movement around campus because we can, we can geo-locate them. Right. Yeah. You know, they have to, the trust breakdown will come and has already come in certain uh, situations when students feel they're being tracked, and, and there doesn't seem to be no payback for this intelligence that the university is gathering.
0: Yeah. yeah the I, I would also think that there's a fair amount of friction to overcome here with this technology uh, being adopted by the, the teachers as well. I mm-hmm. mean, you've got. There's so many stakeholders here, right? I mean, you've got students, you've got faculty, you have the administration of the school, who owns the data, the vendors. I mean, I guess a lot of this maybe exists in business capacity, too. But I wonder, you know, if universities aren't supposed to be primarily profit driven. (laughs) <laughs> how, how do you get teachers i don't, I don't want to get too far off on that but wash wash
1: your mouth out with soap and exactly water. i know
0: you pure, purest <laughs> so, me thinking that way but tell me about the teacher friction here like in terms of getting them to actually a care about this believe about it participate mm-hmm. in the design of a, a, a system i could see this being difficult to get adoption when when maybe they don't i are we really? Did, are we at such an elementary level with this technology right now, where the first technology um, output that we get that's supposed to be assisting with the learning process is is so low level still that it may be perceived as just a tax on the teacher's time? Hmm. And
1: no, I mean there are, there are there are lots of success stories and the, and there are lots of failure stories and and that's, uh-huh. that's just what you expect when you've got. Uh, ed tech companies moving at high speed mm-hmm. trying to get product out there quickly. Right. Uh, analytics is the current buzzword, so mm-hmm. everyone 's got to have analytics and and less attention is going into into actually is this useful so, right. so if you have bad products out there and people pick up that it 's all being hyped, then the, you know you'll get natural skepticism and Educators are obviously smart people mm-hmm. and um and um, they don 't like being being dumped on with bad technology any, any more than the next person mm-hmm. so so you know we're we are dealing on the one hand with with poor products that give the whole field a bad name, but on the other hand, well, there are some really great products out there that are making a tangible difference. And there's and, and teachers are extremely enthusiastic about them. Mm-hmm. And you know, our job here at the university, and also, you know, I, I work with the, the Society for Learning Analytics Research, Solar, which is a global organization to try and educate and raise the quality of of, of the dialogue and the conversation amongst educators and, and researchers and mm-hmm. and the vendors, you know, so there's incredibly useful stuff here that teachers will get very enthusiastic about when it's quite clear that it's getting it's giving them some value. Mm-hmm. You know, so there, there's 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 good evidence now about the impact that some of these tools can have on 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 the le- on learning that teachers can can you know give some homework out and the next morning they can see. On their dashboard which which questions were the students really struggling with well let's just prioritize our time this morning on reviewing those questions and not the ones that everyone's already nailed students can progress at their own pace with certain kinds of adaptive platforms so that you know if they're struggling with something it's going it's going to rewind it's going to diagnose that they're really struggling with a with a, a threshold concept of some sort it's going to walk them through more slowly or if you at the other end of the spectrum we're going to tr- stretch and challenge you. Um, you know, it's really useful to know I, I, I've set this this pre-work before we have our exciting collaborative session, but it's not going to work if the students haven't watched the video or mm-hmm. read the PDF. you know um, And we can ask all sorts of interesting questions just about what well, did they did they do the pre-work? Uh, did the students who did the pre-work a good week before the session do much better than the ones who were cramming the night before? Mm-hmm. Has this student mastered these core concepts you. Know? Mm-hmm is someone with this kind of track record in her subjects likely to struggle with this new subject that they're contemplating? Mm-hmm. So these are questions which, which are extremely important and relevant for, for, for students and teachers. Uh, the, the area that we're getting more and more interested in and which educators are getting more and more interested in are the kinds of skills and competences you need for a very complex future workplace. Your collaboration ability, your ability to think critically, your ability to reflect on how you're developing as a, as a professional mm-hmm. in training at university. So, you know, these kinds of competency, your, your appetite for risk and uncertainty, because mm-hmm. that's what we can guarantee the future holds. And pretty much we don't know what else is coming, you know, so we're very interested in diagnostics, which will give feedback to teachers and students about these kinds of competencies. And that's sort of the leading edge, um, of the field
0: at the moment. Got it. Got it. You, you said uh, in one of our email exchanges in the kind of ed tech world, you said there's a challenge of the quote, ignorant users. Um, can you unpack that for us a little bit here?
1: Well, yeah, this is one of the the interesting things about working in learning compared to, to most other contexts, right? So if you're doing user centered design or participatory design or whatever you want to call it, right? How do you find out how people work? How do you find out what the... The the activities and the workflows and the work practices are that your system is going to have to support and hopefully not completely disrupt, right? Well, you talk to the users, right? But in learning, we've got this rather interesting situation because obviously you've got students, they can tell you what their experience of studying a course is. They're the world expert on their experience studying, but they're not expert learners, right? Students are not necessarily very good at studying they don't really often have very good revision practices they're obviously not experts in the subject matter because that's why they're learning and nor are they very good at teaching i mean they're not expert educators they don't know what the what's good for them mm-hmm. they know what they like but they don't necessarily know what's good for them so we have this interesting situation where the quotes you've got inexpert users compared to most situations where the user is considered to be quite authoritative about what their work entails and who they need to talk to and what's important. So we obviously want the student's voice in the design process, but that has to be balanced with all the other voices that are there as well, like the educator's voice, as well as the technologists and uh, the interaction designers and so forth.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, I I mean, I feel like that's maybe not just localized to the the learning space, right? I, I feel like part of the like one thing that I find myself talking, you know, to clients about or even in training context is is kind of unpacking or, or or discovering the latent problems. So because so much of the time, you know, you're not handed this requirements document Absolutely. that perfectly yeah. outlines yeah. this is precisely the problem and the outcome that I want. You you never get that. You you usually get something on the surface And Mm. you have to balance like satisfying the stakeholder with actually what is needed. And to me, that process is usually trying to get an agreement on this hidden thing that you've discovered and getting the team to agree that like, actually, this is the problem space that we're operating in. Do we agree? This is the this is really what we want to solve for. And it takes some soft skills sometimes to,
1: Absolutely, to yeah.
0: negotiate that. But is that the same? Is that kind of how you use yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, so we, we have to deal with all of that, you know, that users often don't know what they want or need, mm-hmm. um, or they don't know what the technology is capable of. And so that's, that's a conversation that has to be had. And when they realize, oh, you can do that now, can you? Oh, well, in that case, that opens up all sorts of interesting possibilities. So we have to deal with all of that, plus the fact that students are not experts in the domain and aren't necessarily experts in what their work practices should be.
0: There is another interesting quote in your email that, that our exchange, and you had said, learning is not shopping. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, I mean, yeah. you can shop for schools. So we all know this, uh, Newsweek or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> <it is>. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> um,
1: well, again, so learning is not shopping. So this is shorthand for... We're talking about something you know which is going on inside the mind, okay. And um, although we can, you know, people are starting to slap uh, skull caps on students in, in experimental labs to try and understand what their brainwaves are doing, and well, we even see in China them rolling out some of this stuff at scale in really worrying ways. Basically, you know, like any data analytics situation, we're really at the mercy of behavior. We have to try and infer from behavioral traces, what's going on in the the mind of the the humans we are studying. If it's shoppers, well, we know they bought something, and we're going to take a guess they might buy something else. Those are fairly discrete transactions, and we know in the end whether we were correct or not. Did they buy the thing or did they not? So when it comes to learning, well, this is rather a more complicated thing. Um, It's in the mind. It's social as well. It's emotional. As well as cognitive. Uh, yet we are working off activity traces that are logged by online platforms or other kinds of sensor technology, which can actually track physical embodied activity. And we have to figure out: Are they learning? So that just makes things rather more interesting, as well as complicated. And this is why we also need to have learning theories. As well, the death of the theory uh, really does not apply in, uh, in, in in the world of learning. We need to have theories which explain how to tie together the kinds of uh, activity traces we're seeing and how they might point to whether someone is actually learning in the ways that we want them to and that's that's a big part of the the whole r and d effort in this field that's why we need learning scientists and educational researchers as well as the uh the technical people
0: and is that like can you can you kind of on our on our theme of of the future since you're from the future? Um, (laughs) what, what does that look like? The, 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 the destination and how far we are from getting to the point, I I assume the, the leaps kind of look like this. There's, there's some learning model that starts to kind of get a little bit more concrete. And then at some point we try to encode that in our technology solution so that we can actually start to then go and measure it. Like if, if those are, I don't know if those are the correct kind of three bullet points of what that journey looks like, but where, where are we on a timeline with those? Mm. those?
1: Yeah, um, well, it's, there aren't many products that do this yet, um, but where we are now is that there are, there, are, there are methodologies being developed so that we can say, okay, if we see this, 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 and this happening in the data traces, we're going to assume, we're going we're gonna to hypothesize that you know, that's, that's a proxy for some higher order construct. Mm-hmm. And this happens, of course, in, in any area of, of data science where you're trying to make build a bridge between low level activity traces and higher order constructs. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, a higher order construct might be the likelihood of switching mobile phone provider, uh, or a like, it might be the likelihood of wanting to buy a house in the next, in the next three months. Uh, and, and, and people will be building models that map from low level data traces to higher order Constructs. So this is what we're doing in the world of learning now. Uh, So we might say, well, if we see a student writing like this, using these kinds of textual features that we can pick up using natural language processing, and they revise their 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 draft writing in response to feedback that we've, we've we've provided automatically, well, that looks like progress. It looks like they're thinking more critically, or it looks like they're reflecting more deeply on. Um, an experience they've had, for for example, like a work placement. So we have developed software tools here at UTS, which give instant feedback to students on their writing. We're not talking about spelling and grammar and plagiarism here. We're talking about, are you demonstrating the ability to work with ideas and to reflect critically on yourself and how you're changing as a person? And we have developed mappings from low-level textual features to these higher-order capabilities which we're really interested in all right uh, or we are tracking how a team is working a team of nurses working together face to face around a patient that patient ma- is a mannequin streaming data but we're also tracking the students and their position and who's talking and who's who's, in, who's using different kinds of equipment and administering different kinds of treatment and, and again all that data can be aggregated and we will then say, well, if we see this happening in this kind of way at this moment in time in relation to your peers, that looks like you've understood how to do X, Y, or Z. And, and it's, it's that critical mapping from low level traces, which is the world of machine sensors, up to higher order capabilities, which is the world of learning and skillful performance.
0: Got it. And that, um, I mean, one thing I was thinking about as you were talking about that is, is that I would hope. And maybe this is where you know your your design background your design background comes in and and hopefully hopefully that, that skill set is present in and, and other people that are working in this space. But like there's some funny like opposites here where you know in a business context, you know, writing skills like short, brief, clear, uh use clear language, et cetera. And then you look in the, the university space, right, where there's an academic writing style, which could be completely different, right? The vocabulary could be very domain specific, could be very technical. Uh, it could be very, very detail oriented. And so I start wondering when we, we talk about these models, you know, for something as basic as writing, like, how do you, I guess there's different scores, right? Are we talking about how well is this student preparing to enter a PhD program is different than how well will they write for, you know, how, mm-hmm. how is their, their written communication skill for the business world? <laughs> you know? That's
1: right. So There are different kinds of writing in, in the world of, of academics. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and, so, and so the way that we would use the tool is working really closely with the, the educators. Mm-hmm. Uh, the educators are trying to get the students writing a decent business analysis. Mm-hmm. or a decent reflection on their work placement in, mm-hmm. in, in a pharmacy or in an engineering company or a law student putting together a really good essay so these these are different kinds of writing but actually underlying it there is some sort of dna that we have identified that that shows evidence of critical thinking uh, bringing ideas together contrasting tensions or disagreements identifying missing knowledge and actually these 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 kinds of forms of critical thinking are things that are just as relevant in the business world and the, and the world of government and policy analysis or market analysis as it is in academia. So this isn't just about, you know, how do you write to get published in a journal? This is actually about critical thinking and, and making that thinking visible clearly to the reader. And, and you're as interested in missing knowledge or expressing surprise about something that you weren't expecting. In the world of business and and policy analysis, as you are in, in in the world of research and uh, or, or studying a subject.
0: Yeah, that's it. It you could you could really see here just I, I from the picture you just painted how important you know if you're using predictive technologies the the training the training data is right to to be able to say you know this this is a this is an excellent you know. Legal brief, or this is an excellent, you know, business case study, or this is an excellent, you know, mm-hmm. uh, piece of poetry. <laughs> you know, how do you mm. m- modeling that stuff such that if you're going to score on it later, or you know, predict mm. a student's aptitude, that seems really, really important. But it's interesting that you're finding a. a if I understood it, you've, you're finding some commonalities across all the different domains uh, from the work. Is that correct?
1: There, there are certainly some commonalities across the domains. I should emphasize that we're not going anywhere near poetry or creative writing because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, machines really don't do that very well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are talking about more analytical forms of writing where you're making an argument of some sort. Got it. Or reflective writing where, you know, increasingly we get students, and, and this is also done in senior leadership development as well, coaching, to, to write reflectively about how they're making sense of a challenging experience, mm-hmm. what they're learning, how they might be changing, uh, what, what, what uh, and so forth, mm-hmm. and and those those are kinds of writing that span many disciplines. Uh, some of the work we do is is um, in fact this text analytics work is actually not machine learning driven. It's actually a rule based grammar. Uh, we won't get into the details of that here, but mm-hmm. certainly within the field of education, there is interest in predictive models. Uh, for example, you know we're interested in predicting. Uh, well, you know which students might be most in need of some extra extra support uh, because it looks like they're struggling. So we're not involved in that work ourselves right now, but there are quite a few universities around the world who are very interested in predictive models for sort of spotting at risk students. Mm -hmm. There are some interesting examples where that's really paying off. Uh, There are also some examples where it's been used really appallingly to to try and weed out poor students, uh, um, you know, and, and almost stop them enrolling just by predicting their statistical likelihood of failure based on demographics. Uh, and this is not what education is about, of course. You know, we, we don't want to be seeing these, these kinds of technologies closing down opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can use predictive modeling to identify, you know, which students might be most in need of support or... But, but then there's, there's some really interesting ethical questions around that as well. So, you know, well, what do you do if the model is flagging a student red? Mm -hmm. You can't pick up the phone to them and say, our algorithm thinks you're at risk. Okay, that's going to freak the student out. Um, You have to deal very sensitively with that. Do you only call the students that the algorithm is flagging or do you, you check in with all the students? Exactly how is that algorithm working? Right? So we know, for example, most universities know that students from a particular area, postcode, zip code, uh, or students with particular demographic profiles are going to be higher risk because they've got more challenges. They're, they're maybe the first in family at university. They're coming from less opportunity, etc. Statistically, then, there's a shadow over them. But we don't really want to, we certainly don't want to, uh, you know, classify pigeonhole or or, or um, flag somebody at risk simply because of historical uh, injustices or inequalities of opportunity.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, so
1: there's some really interesting ethical issues here. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they're on campus, once they are signed up, okay. supposing our algorithm says, hmm, well, the students who got high grades, those are the ones who go to the library a lot. Uh, those are the ones who also seem to write much longer assignments. They also seem to be much more enthusiastic buyers of university merchandise like the sweatshirts from the shop. Mm-hmm. right? So we've got predictive variables uh, that correlate with high outcomes. But of course, those are not necessarily causal. right? Buying the university sweatshirt is not causing you to right. perform better. Going to the library, well, okay, there's some causal relationship there, one might assume, but you don't simply tell students to go to the library more because that's what the high-performing students do, right? Learning is a complex social and emotional and cognitive business. And and, and so simply because you found correlations does not mean you've got causation. Uh, and so, you know, these models, what if they're if, if they're black boxes? Then we have potentially a problem here because there's a question around accountability. And if we try and explain how they work, that can be also pretty tricky as well. So these predictive models are a double-edged sword for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you foresee those as being a ways off before they're going to be you know, properly constructed, uh, adopted, safely understood, interpreted, trusted? Yeah. Is that a yeah. ways off?
1: I mean, they're in, they're in products already, and when they're used well, they're, then, they're, then they can be effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're also, they can also be a sort of weapon of mass destruction if, sure. you, if you use them badly. It's it's a culture shift, as in many sectors, right? Moving to mm-hmm. moving to making decisions where you've got input from a model is not something many people used to do, um, and there's there's going to be questions around trust and accountability and transparency, and education is is no more exempt from those concerns as any of the other sectors, which are now becoming under- scrutiny from, uh, you know, the AI ethics and data science ethics type uh, critiques, and that's entirely appropriate.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think design matters in this case? Like, is it is it going to make a difference in how this?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, we've talked about, uh, I feel like what we're doing is we're talking about the whole infrastructure, Mm -hmm. which includes the human infrastructure as well as the technical infrastructure. And at at every level of this infrastructure, we have to think critically about that. I'm still really interested in user experience and, and how we design these things. Uh, and um, you know, if you have a rubbish user experience with something, then you know these days people have quite high expectations. And so we we absolutely need the best design thinking going into the design of, of those user interfaces, as well as into the design of the processes that lead to those systems in the first place. Mm-hmm. Something we're really interested in is data storytelling, and um, I know that you've you've spoken with uh, people like Paul Naflick and others uh, before. So we, we we take great inspiration from some of that data storytelling work. Mm-hmm. And um, we we think that it's, it's it's absolutely critical. You know, you've got a huge amount of data you could present to somebody. Well, how are you gonna do that in a man in a manageable, intelligible way? How are you gonna foreground the important stuff? How are you gonna make sure that a student, if you're gonna put up a dashboard or some sort of, or a visualization of some sort, or or for a teacher, how are they gonna quickly see the signal amidst the noise? Their time is precious. They do not have hours to go doing exploratory data analysis, even if they had the skills. Um, A dashboard is meant to be something that you can glance at quite quickly and see the key messages. And so we've been taking on board some of the the great work on information design and data storytelling and exploring whether we can um, render and foreground the important messages so that uh, that really drives the visual attention around the user interface.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it seems, it seems so multifactored, you know, there, there's, there's leadership has its lens on this whole system The the teachers are obviously integral to this. And of course the, the students themselves, right. And how, how do they all interact and who's, who's inputting data versus, you know, reading mm-hmm. out what's happening, you know, how much is the student in control of, of any of these things. I mean, I could see it being really frustrating. If you see, if you feel one way and you see, you find out that you're being, you know, flagged by this surveillance system that that thinks you're at risk or thinks that you, you know, you're in a cohort that you you don't identify with, and not having, not feeling like you can do something about that could be really frustrating. A lot, a lot of friction there on multiple.
1: Yeah, yeah, levels. and and you know, in one sense, this is no different to any other complex human organization where mm-hmm. people are doing interesting stuff, and, and we've got machines trying to make sense of it. Um. It just has takes particular forms in education, mm-hmm. and as I as I flag, learning is a particularly complex form of human behaviour, um, which which uh, needs handling with care. Of course, you know, um, when this works well, then then the data is a provocation for reflection. It says, so, well, you might think you're doing great, but actually you're not, and you know, it's our job here at a university or in a school to actually confront you with that. That's what you pay for. Mm-hmm. but let's try and do that in a constructive way uh and let's make sure that we understand how this technology is working and what its limitations are because there is this aura of you know omniscience around big data and ai in some quarters and um people can be tempted to just go with the machine's recommendations sometimes because they're busy and um we have to make sure that, that you know the humans are in the loop in, in an appropriate way
0: sure sure just kind of wrapping up here is is there Anything particular you you would like to to share, either from your background in, you know in human computer interaction, or uh, from an educational standpoint that you think could translate, you know, transfer over to the business world? Like any any methods of working, or you know, things that you you feel are working well in your space that you you don't see happening so much in in the business world.
1: Well, um, to the extent that businesses and governments and and other sectors are interested in their own staff's learning and development you know what we're doing in the world of what's called learning analytics or educational data science that's relevant for you so there's a conversation to have there about workplace learning and how that's different from you know formal education Mm -hmm. so but you know there's definitely relevance of of what we're doing to those sectors in terms of design processes i'm I don't think we've invented any radical new you know, user-centered design, co-design or participatory design techniques. Um, what we have been doing is adapting well-known techniques from co-design, for example, you know, using playing cards to structure conversations. We've developed a deck of cards that's particularly tuned to thinking and talking about, about data and analytics and feedback. Mm-hmm. We've used user journeys, as, you know, which are a well-known technique, you know, mapping the user journey as they enter our organization's digital space, et cetera. Well, we've, we've done a variation of that for eliciting from learners what their experience is when they, they engage in learning and where data and analytics might, might help them. So mm-hmm. we've been doing a bit of adaptation of well-known, you know, low-tech, high-touch kinds of design right. techniques. Uh, I think perhaps the most interesting work is, is the stuff that, that I mentioned earlier, which is how do you map from low-level machine logs to higher-order human capabilities, and skills. Uh, that's something that I think organizations will be increasingly interested in doing. Has to be handled with care. There is an emerging field of you know, human resource analytics, which is trying to, to get at their staff capabilities by using uh, data traces. That's a conversation that I think could be really worth having between the HR world and the world of learning and education as well, because. In, in, the, in that sense, we're, we're actually trying to do something quite similar, but it's also fraught with difficulty as well. If you make the wrong inference, you know, I mean, there can be quite high stakes attached to concluding that an employee is really not doing their job based on an analytics dashboard. So, you know, let's walk in with our eyes wide open, but it's a very exciting field. And, um, you know, when it's done well, then it, it, has, it has huge benefits. When it's done badly, then it's pretty destructive.
0: Simon, this has been really great. Uh, just again, for our listeners, I've been talking to Simon Buckingham Shum, who's a professor of learning informatics and director of the Connected Intelligence Center at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. And on that note, Simon, where can people uh, follow your, your work and what you're doing? Uh, social media, LinkedIn, what's,
1: what's Yeah, your... I'm pretty active. Uh, Simon.buckinghamshum.net. Um, you go to
0: LinkedIn slash Simon. Uh, you can find me. Awesome, great. I will definitely uh, link those up and uh, thanks for coming on Experiencing Data and and sharing sharing all this information about the learning analytics field with us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been uh, really interesting talking to you and I
0: I love the whole podcast
1: series. You have great people and such interesting uh, backgrounds. uh, So
0: very happy to to be part of it. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, glad to have you as well. All right, thanks very much, Brian. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag ExperiencingData. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit DesigningForAnalytics.com podcast.